today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Yesterday, it was announced that Chris Murray will be leaving the city of Hamilton for a similar position in Toronto. Let's talk to Larry Deany, former mayor of the city of Hamilton. He is with us now. Larry, thanks so much for taking the time. We appreciate this. My pleasure as always, Scott. So what were your thoughts when you first heard this news, Larry? Well, I, I was surprised by it, um, as I think many Hamiltonians might might be, at least those who pay attention to the administrative structure at City Hall, uh, but also I'm not shocked by it because I've always admired uh, Chris's work and I've always known uh, that his capacity would draw the attention of others. And I sort of uh, had him pegged for maybe... Uh, uh, a provincial role rather than in another municipality, but uh, um, there you go. What do you think attracted Toronto to him? Well, I, I think his qualities, um, and they've been pretty well described in the media. Uh, Chris, uh, above all, is he's highly intelligent, highly professional. Um, he's he. You know, he's a public servant with a capital P and a capital S, I guess. He has all the best interests of his employer and the municipality that he works for or the governmental entity that he works for at heart. Uh, But as well as that, um, he's a problem solver. Uh, He takes on challenging roles and figures out a way, using the talent uh, that he's got around him, uh, figures out a way of resolving issues. And he does that without fuss and muss and drama. Um, and, uh, and that's always appreciated, certainly by the political class uh, in the city of Hamilton, I know, and, and, and beyond. How did he contribute? How did he move this forward? As we look back at this time in, in, in Hamilton's history, many have described it as a renaissance. What would his role have been? Well, so the, the chief administrative officer uh, is the person who is in charge of the bureaucracy um, in, uh, in the city of Hamilton and will be in the city of Toronto. Uh, only the, the order of magnitude in Toronto is, is much larger, of course. We're a city of, um, you know, 530,000 people. Toronto is a city of 2.5 million people. Um, we have, um, you know, 7,800 staff members. Toronto apparently has 34,000 staff members. And so his structure, uh, although similar in terms of the positions of <clears throat> responsibility um, in Toronto, will be that much larger, that much more complicated. Um, so so the, the responsibility of, of the CAO is to take the uh, in the leadership that that the elected officials uh, demonstrate, uh, the initiatives that the elected officials want to move forward, and implement those to success. But as well as that, <clears throat> his job is in providing the advice to the leadership, uh, the political leadership class, that will have them formulate good and doable and positive initiatives in the first place. So, so the uh, chief administrative officer is important at both ends of that spectrum. One in generating advice uh, to the political class that would see them, you know, develop uh, issues that they feel would move the community forward, and actually be the the administrator in charge of making sure that those things those things get done. Obviously, uh, this is a good time for Hamilton, not the fact that Chris is leaving, of course, but just as far as in Hamilton's history, Hamilton is on the uptick. It's certainly making lots of news. Uh, Are you worried that other people are going to get poached? Well, so, you know, he's not the first one. Uh, I don't know if I'd use the word poached, but he's certainly uh, Hamilton uh, has been uh, mined before uh, for talent. Um, Rob Rossini, that people may have forgotten, but he was the uh, um, head of finance here for a while. Uh, he went on to Toronto, and I think uh, I think he's one of the three uh, um, administrators, or, or at least assistant uh, city administrators in the city of Toronto now, a talented um, individual in his own right. And, of course, Lou DiGeronimo, that people may not remember uh, too well because he left quite some years ago now, but I certainly remember him. Uh, he is in charge of Toronto Water, 
uh, and he was in charge of our, our water wastewater system here. And there may be others as well at other uh, perhaps uh, lower positions that, that may have made their way to Toronto. So we're a fairly fertile um, ground for talent in uh, the big city. Was this an easy time to be city manager? It's never an easy time to be city manager because uh, uh, events crop up all the time. Uh, problems never go away. They change. Uh, you solve one. It's, it's a little bit like whack-a-mole, you know. Uh, hmm. One, one uh, is uh, slayed and, and the other one pops up. So it's never easy. And, and then you're dealing with the two tracks as well. You're dealing with the political track and you're dealing with the administrative track. And it's difficult to walk that tightrope sometimes because you may be uh, uh, put in positions where uh, one of those two uh, may be out of sync and it's your job as the chief administrative officer to do all you can to realign uh, the whole process so that it works well for the community you serve. So it's never an easy time. However, as you said yourself just a few moments ago, um, the challenges that Hamilton had you know, when I was involved 10 years ago, are not the same challenges that it has today. And some of the seeds that were planted uh, back then by different administrations are taking, uh, are, are flowering now, and, and they're more obvious to people within the city and, and outside of the city. Um, so it is a good time for Hamilton in that sense, that there is momentum, that there are good things happening, that there is development that there is wealth creation, that there is poverty reduction. Uh, all of those are great, uh, but all of those are insufficient because uh, as far, you know, you can reduce poverty, uh, but there's always more to reduce. You can develop and create jobs, but there's always more that you can do. Um, so um, right now, uh, the new administrator will be coming from a position of strength rather than a position of deficit as occurred maybe 20 years ago. How will those down at City Hall, how should citizens view this? Well, you know, the, the chief administrative officer's job is not to be the face of the city. That's the mayor's job. Uh, that's the job for the councillors. So many citizens will be reading the headline this morning and saying, who is he again? Yeah, so? <laughs> which, you know, which is probably the way that Chris Murray and other city managers would like it. They don't want to be front and center in the news, but they want to make sure that good things get done. And frankly, if you have a city manager that is not effective, good things will not get done. You know, a, a, um, a mediocre political team with a superior administrative team will keep the city going. Uh, a superior political team with a mediocre administrative team will not keep the city going. And when you have a superior political team and a superior administrative team, well, then you're firing on all engines. And I think that we've been doing that in the last little while. Uh, it was interesting listening to uh, Chris Murray comment on this yesterday, and he was saying, you know, it's not so much that I'm going from city to city, I'm just going through it for a different position within the region. He views it as all one area. Your thoughts on that? Well, and, you know, uh, really, um, uh, when, when, and I remember, the, you know, fighting this battle when I was there in the chair and meeting with provincial counterparts, and there was the D GTA, uh, and, uh, and the debate then was, would uh, the H be added to the GTA? Would mm. Hamilton be part of it? And my whole argument at the time was, look, we are part of the problem uh, in terms of generating uh, maybe traffic and, and uh, um, you know, needing to generate more jobs. So we need to be part of the solution. And really, it's a whole corridor, I would say, from Oshawa right down to the Niagara Peninsula. Yeah. But certainly from Toronto to Hamilton, it's it's, uh, you know, it's, it's an unbroken corridor, really. We are tied in so much uh, economically as well as in terms of transportation. Our people go back and forth in terms of uh, uh, work uh, as well. And look at the people that have come to, from Toronto who may still work there but are now living in Hamilton. Mm. So we're integrated. And so Chris uh, gets it absolutely right that what's good for the whole corridor is good for any part of the corridor as well. 
Uh, but having said that, he is now going to be giving his undivided attention uh, to the city of Toronto, and I know he'll have challenges there. He's up to the task, and hopefully he will not forget the collaboration that we'll need when his council has to uh, deal with issues that are similar to ours. Yeah, it never hurts to have a friend over there, does it? It does not hurt to have a friend. And, you know, again, um, my, my, I remember, you know, Mayor Miller was the mayor when I was, uh, when I was involved in the chair, and he was surprised. He said to me at one point, as did the mayor of Burlington at the time as well, he said, you're the first mayor of Hamilton that we had for a while that speaks well of our communities. Uh, whether Burlington or or Toronto, and and I thought to myself, well, why wouldn't you want to speak positively? Unless you're talking about football, of course. Yeah. <laughs> why, why wouldn't you want to be speak positively of uh, of your counterparts down the road with whom you share all of the problems and some of the solutions? You need to have that collaborative spirit. So I know Chris will be will continue to be a friend of Hamilton. Well said. Larry DeAnne has been with us, former mayor, city of Hamilton. Larry, as always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Thank you. Let's bring in Jason Farr, Councillor Ward 2. Jason, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. Well, thanks for having me on. Your thoughts on the loss of uh, Chris Murray? Yeah, CM to CM. Chris Murray, the city manager. Uh, well, you know what? Uh, first uh, impression, having heard the news uh, after Toronto's in-camera deliberations yesterday, was... Uh, we're going to be really sorry to see him go. Uh, he's the only city manager, Scott, that I've known in my, uh, you know, close to eight years now. And uh, I can't think of a time where I had issue uh, with with Chris when I had an issue. I, I didn't, I, I was never the one to go to the principal's office or the prof's office at Mac or, or even the city manager's office as a counselor. So I think he knew that when I did reach out to him, there was something where I really needed his assistance. And he always, he always came through for me and, I think that's just a tale that each and every elected official in Hamilton right now in past terms of council could could share with you as well. It's just a, a go-to guy in, in the right position, and especially, as Larry alluded to, uh, in the right time for our city. Uh, what's the buzz down at City Hall in regard to this? How should citizens view this? Well, I think part of it, any, any citizen who listens to your program or bills or CHML or follows the news closely and follows council closely will be like, I, I, I truly believe, like most of us around the horseshoe and the mayor, not too surprised. I mean, he, he really is a talent, and talent tends to get scouted. And, uh, you know, Chris said it to uh, Bill Kelly this morning, his kids are now university age. He was primed and ready and still young enough to uh, take on uh, the kinds of challenges that uh, make his life clearly worthwhile. That's what he lives for, and he's obviously going to get that in Toronto. So anybody who really follows City Hall... Uh, we'll probably uh, appreciate and respect Chris Murray as much as, as we did around the council table and, and probably, you know, given it uh, a little bit of thought, understand that, uh, of course, he's going to be, well, you called it poached, and I, I might agree with you uh, <laughs> as a terminology because uh, certainly uh, uh, they came after him, and, and not too many people are going to be surprised about that. Uh, what about replacement? What happens now? Well, now we'll have uh, finance general manager, um, uh, Mike Zagarek, uh, take his place. Uh, another hugely respected individual. For, for all of Chris's, uh, great abilities and knowledge as it related to things like planning, he was a planner by trade, housing, he was a master at, at, at affordable housing and housing issues and, and engagement. Mike Zagarek has, uh, the same kinds of qualifications and expertise and respect as it relates to city financing and, and, uh, certainly has, uh, stepped into some very big shoes from the, uh, Rob Brasini, who uh, Larry was just speaking about, our former uh, general manager of finance, uh, has it just hit the ground running in that role in the last two and a half years. And, and we have a lot of faith. I think I can speak uh, confidently for council and the mayor today on your show. I don't normally, but uh, we have a lot of faith that at least in the interim period, uh, Zagarek will be uh, just fine in that role. Jason Farr. Jason Farr has been with his counselor, Ward 2, uh, on his thoughts on uh, Chris Murray leaving, of course, Hamilton to take the same job in the city of Toronto. Jason, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you, and best of luck to Chris Murray. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. The president never ceases to amaze us. Um, solving the world's problems, talking from uh, talking with one dictator to another. 
as he hop, skips, and jumps uh, across the country, across the world. Uh, the White House, however, is preparing for a meeting of another sort now, uh, this time with Russia's Vladimir Putin. It looks like a summit will be held in Helsinki on July 16th. Uh, the Kremlin announced this uh, earlier on today. Let's bring in George Breckenridge, retired political science professor, McMaster University. He is with us now. George, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, hang on. George, are you there? Yep, yeah. Oh, no, sorry, my fault. Fat fingers today, George. <laughs> okay, no, I'm here. Okay. Uh, before we get on to, to this, your thoughts on uh, Stephen Harper heading to the White House without the Prime Minister knowing anything about it. Your thoughts on that? I didn't even realize he was doing that, to be honest. Nobody seemed no, to. No, it's not been well publicized, at least from what I've seen. Uh, well, it, he... This is sort of against protocol, isn't it? But Harper's been kind of emerging as, uh, you know, after hibernating for, for quite a while, the last couple of years, really, uh, emerging to, to try and play a role as a sort of conservative statesman, I think. So um, he and Trump should get on fine. Uh, that being said, uh, should the prime minister have been notified about this? I mean, how happy think, can they yeah, be? I think courtesy would, would indicate something like that. But, mm. I mean, courtesy is not the big... Is not uh, you know not not strong with either Trump or, or Harper. I don't think. So. Good point. All right, let's talk about uh, the next summit. Uh, is this what Donald Trump's doing? Just going from uh, country to country oh, yeah, yeah. and meeting this, with this is, dictators? This, this is, no, this is what he loves. He loves one-on-one uh, -on -one stuff. He hates multilateral meetings. There's lots of evidence of that, where he can't be you know the center of attention all the time, and he has to sit and listen to other people, which bores them silly. Um, there's lots of evidence of that. So he he much prefers the one-on-one -on -one stuff, partly also because he has this confidence, which is not really justified by his history, I don't think, that he's a great negotiator. You know, he's a great negotiator, so he can do a deal. And, you know, the, the pomp and circumstance, which will no doubt go with this in Helsinki, as it did in Singapore, um, when he met you know, Kim Jong-un, um, yeah, he loves that sort of thing. He's been after this for some time. Uh, why now? Why is is this? Uh, well, world politics, world issues are irrelevant. It's what it's, it's all about. Trump's schedule rather than well, what's happening in the that. world. It's partly that he's he's due to go to the NATO meeting uh, on the 11th and 12th in Brussels, right? And then he's going to his much postponed visit to London on the Friday. And uh, which will be a fairly quiet. So there'll be lots of huge demonstrations against him in London. So it's a fairly it's been downgraded from a state visit to a working visit. And although he's apparently going to meet the the Queen privately, and then he goes up to Scotland. What do you think the Queen's going to say to him? Oh, I, I, think I mean, queen, she has I think met the Queen. Will be fascinated. I mean, she's met a lot of. She's very, met everyone. She's met well a lot of very strange yeah. and, and evil people in her time. <laughs> really? Oh, sure. She's shaking hands with all kinds of people. I know. I'd love so to I be a fly on the wall in that meeting. Yeah, I think she'll be fascinated by this strange phenomenon, you know. And I think Trump, I'm sure Trump will be on his best behavior. She's probably one of the few people who I suspect will overall Trump. Well, he yeah. loved the Queen. He likes yeah, the whole I mean, idea of it. He How can he get a crown? Well, that's right. She's an institution. That's, <laughs> that's right. right. And then so, he goes to Scotland for a couple of days golf at one of his golf courses. Mm. And then he flies to Helsinki. And, of course... The other thing about the date is that uh, Putin has to be in Moscow or wants to be in Moscow to preside over the final of the World Cup on the on the Sunday on the fifteenth. Right. So that's why it's been pushed over to the sixteenth. So what about the fact? How is everyone in NATO going to feel about after the little meeting that uh, Trump's having here? He's going yeah. to whisk off and, and meet with Putin. Well, I mean, I, how I does think, that change yeah, that think, meeting? I think that's the danger in the whole thing. You recall when the G7 meeting was in Quebec yeah. shortly before he had to fly to Singapore, and he clearly didn't want to go to Quebec at all. And he was he arrived late. He left early. He was rude when he was there. He showed up late for meetings. He was yeah. bored silly because his whole preoccupation was with his great summit with Kim yeah. Jong-un in, in Singapore a couple of days later. The danger is he's going to be in exactly the same mood. He's so is, he's going to be on the summit. So is he going to light another fire before he leaves well, NATO? He could, yeah, I think he, I, I'm sure he doesn't want to go to the NATO meeting, but he'll I, sort of pretty well have to. And he may well cause a lot of trouble there, you know, be rude and everything else. And uh, further kind of undermine, you know, his connection with his allies, who he doesn't really care about. 
and, and because he'll be completely focused on this wonderful summit that he's going to hold on the Monday. So um, why now? Like, again, I was joking yeah. that it just fits into Trump's schedule now, but yeah, like, I, is, I, there, is there a need for a meeting with Russia right now? No, no. Well, well, let me put it this way. I mean, the notion that it would be good for America and Russia to talk hmm. before, because things, relations have really deteriorated. Now, now, most of that is Russia's fault, of course, Yeah, with interference in the election and, and you, you snatching the Crimea from Ukraine and stuff like that. So and he says them, he's going to talk. They're the ones who, who are really to blame for this. But, but still, you know, you've got two powerful countries, and it is quite important that they talk. I, but I just don't see what he can get out of this. Apart, it's, it's the meeting, and you know they, they've they've met two or three times privately on the edge of other meetings, but this is a one-on-one, you see. But I don't see what's coming out of this. I mean, and Trump says he's going to talk about things like Crimea too. Well, yeah. So 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 what's so what's Putin going to do? Withdraw from Crimea? I don't uh, think so. No, no. <laughs> and uh, you know, and, and Trump is already repeating what he had said before that Trump. That Putin assures him that he didn't interfere in the American election, yeah. in spite of all the overwhelming evidence from the security people and the intelligence people that Russians did interfere. And Do you think he sort of says he's prepared to believe it? And he know? pulled back from that himself as well. Um, that being said, did uh, uh, is he trying to sell to America? Oh, look, Russia's not all that bad. Is that where you think he's going with this? Yeah, that's right. He, I, mean, I think, for, from Putin, what he sort of gets out of it a bit at any rate, is a little more recognition. He's no longer a pariah yeah. among, among the, on the West. That's what he'll, he'll claim. But again, I don't, think, I don't see what substantive... Uh, it's a bit like the other summit that he had in Singapore. Nothing really substantive came out of it. And now we're starting to hear that uh, there's concerns from South Korea that North Korea is not backing down on any of this stuff. Well, that's the thing. You see, that's the thing. I mean, he, you know, he, came, he comes out of his summit in Singapore and he says, well, you know, the nuclear threat is over. Well, that's ridiculous. Yeah. Absolutely. There's been no follow-up. And with such evidence as there is has been that, you know, the, the North Koreans are going about their business as usual. So with the Russians, I don't see what he can possibly get. Um, you know, he's 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 giving Putin sort of you know surrounding the whole thing. Of course, is this strange fascination that he's had with Putin from the very beginning. You know, and and all these connections that the people around him, at least, had with Russians in the run-up to the election. Won't this meeting with Putin suck all the air out of the NATO meetings? I mean, well, that's what, that's what I'm saying. They're I mean, going to talk they, about. That's, that's exactly, all they're going to be talking about. That's exactly the danger. It's going to over overhang it because part of what the NATO meeting is about is the threat, particularly to say the Baltic, yeah. the little Baltic states there, uh, and and Poland is worried as well that uh, Putin could, is quite capable of flexing his muscles again. So the NATO meeting is partly about the Russian threat, and yet he's going to be completely preoccupied with, with his, this great triumph of holding a, an actual formal summit with Putin. So I say he, he could do a lot of damage at the NATO meeting. Uh what are the other world leaders thinking of this? I mean, North Korea is one thing. Yeah. There was a threat there, and okay, if yeah. we weren't sure if this was going to, you know, snip the fuse or light it, but, yeah. you know, it seemed to work for a while. But yeah. this is completely different. It is. It is. Because, you know, as I say, I don't, I, I think the notion of, of staying in touch with, you know, you 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 know, you stay in touch with your enemies if you want to put it like that. Yeah. Um, so so not so talking is better than not talking. You have to keep in communication. Sure. But Trump is not the guy to deliver anything. <laughs> he really isn't. I mean, he's yeah. he's the wrong person. Uh, and and, the, and I think Putin feels he's doing fine by you know the the the, the kind of the turmoil that Trump is creating among the Western allies, is, is plays right into Putin's hand. That's exactly what he wants. Yeah, he's... he's he I don't w- think Trump he, is doing it deliberately in order to play into Putin's No, hand, no. But it's simply a consequence of the, of the way Trump operates. Yeah, the more, the, the more uh, confused America is, the better Russia likes it. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, who does Trump meet with next? <laughs> Where does this go? <laughs> well, that's a good question. He clearly, Assad? 
Well, these are the big, these are the biggies, you know. Yeah. And of course, he has met with the, the president of China yeah. a couple of times. Um, yeah, I don't know who who is I mean, like pretty soon. I mean, if this is all about the storyline, George, yeah. and it really seems to be it about does, the storyline, yeah, uh, like other than strapping themselves to a rocket and flying up the International <laughs> Space Station, I don't know what else he can do. Well, who else? Yeah, I mean, these are these are the big guys, you know. Uh, Kim Jong Un and and Putin are the big ones. Now he you know he's shown an affinity for other. Um, sort of dictators, or like uh, Erdogan in Turkey, and people like that. But they are small potatoes compared to the two big ones. <laughs> so I don't know what you do is what what he does for his next act. That's the thing. What about the whole contamination of the U.S. election? How does he uh, how does he have a summit with Putin and not bring that up? Well, the the uh, Secretary of State says that he will bring it up. Um, and it will also bring up Ukraine and that sort of thing. I'm sure he, I mean, I'm sure it will be brought up, quote unquote. And then Putin will say, no, I, and then Putin will, then Putin will say, no, I didn't do that. And he'll be fine with it. Well, exactly, exactly. You see, and part of the reason he's always been so sensitive on that question is because it would seem on the face of it to undercut the legitimacy of his own election. Mm. So he doesn't like to hear anything that might throw any further shadow on his own election. And so that's plus this this strange set of connections with the Rush with various Russians, and of course anybody who's who's connection with any Russian businessman or banker or whatever is basically dealing with Putin indirectly or indirectly. So all along you've had this strange, uh, and that's why the Mueller in, in investigation was set up. You've had this strange aura of connections with Russia of all people. And, uh, and and Putin stands at the center of the web in, in, in Russia. How do you think, how is this going to play in the U.S.? And I know what the answer is going to be, George. Well, the base will love it. Everybody else will be ticked off. <laughs> yes. But, like, is that going to, and the base is continuing to grow. I mean, that's the other thing. I mean, well, I don't know about that. I well, uh, I mean, it's, within the Republican Party, he certainly oh, has within, a tremendous yeah, within, amount of support. No, that, no that's true. But, that, but, but, but you see, what that figure doesn't say is who are Republicans. There's yeah. some evidence that the number of people who call themselves Republicans is actually shrinking. So he may be getting 90%, but it seems to be of a slightly declining base. You know, there's some evidence of that as well. No, no, anything he does, the, the, um, the base loves. Or for, for, because they're attached to him for a completely different reason. They're not, it's not policy attachment, nothing like that. They just see him as their kind of guy who's going to fight for them and who doesn't care about political correctness and all the rest of it. That's, that's why they're with him. We certainly know what other G7 leaders think of Trump. Um, yeah. What do you think Putin and people like Kim Jong-un think of Trump? I mean, <laughs> do, do they look at him and do they look and think the same thing that the others do, but just can play him differently to their advantage? I think so. I think so. I mean, the thing that Putin and Kim Jong-un have in common, apparently, well, what people tell us is they're both very meticulously prepared for these things. Mm-hmm. They follow things very closely, which is not true of Trump at all. Yeah. He likes to wing it. You know, he doesn't do his homework. You know, he doesn't listen to even when his advisors talk to him. He's so confident in his own ability, his own his own uh, instincts in dealing with people. And there's really no evidence to show that that's true, but that he feels that way. But he doesn't prepare, you know, and so... Well, I think Trump, Putin understands that very well, and uh, will you know, but and use will use him as much as possible for his own ends. This is a big win for Putin, isn't it? Yeah, sure it is. It is not 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 quite on the same scale as the Kim Jong Un one. No, because they have met before, right? And, and uh, but nevertheless, um, Putin has been kind of ostracized a bit. When he was kicked out of the G7, for example, um, and so anything that 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 treats him uh, as a serious world leader, you know, the Russian economy is very is pretty weak mm-hmm. and pretty small, oddly enough. And what what Putin is obsessed with is somehow restoring the glory of the Soviet Union or the or the uh, the former Russian Empire. You know, that's what he's obsessed with. And uh, so anything that kind of adds a little bit to that is is good for him. That's how he sees it. But I'm sure he understands Trump very well. 
George Breckenridge has been with us, retired political science professor at McMaster University. George, as always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Pleasure, Scott. Thank you. Uh, let's bring in Melvin Levitsky, professor of international policy and practice, Gerald R. Ford School of Public Policy, University of Michigan, and on the line with us now. Melvin, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. You're welcome. Glad to be with you. So what are your initial thoughts when you hear of a Putin-Trump summit? Let me say uh, that, you know, I'm a former diplomat. I have an ambassador, and I served in the, in the old Soviet Union, so I have some, some issues that go way back. But let me, let me say what I think are my, my concern is that this does not look very well prepared. And our president is instinctual rather than liking to read briefing books and uh, sort of conform to a kind of agenda that's set up ahead of time. Uh, so I'm concerned, as I think a uh, number of people are, about um, how this is going to be handled and what the issues are. There are at least uh, a dozen or so issues on the table that are important to U.S. national security. And a president that seems to be happy to criticize allies and praise enemies or adversaries and sort of uh, cultivate this so-called bromance he has with Putin is something that um, that I worry about from the standpoint of U.S. national security issues. Is this just about Donald Trump and the way he does business, uh, unconventional, making everybody feel unstable, making everybody feel divisive? Yes, this will put everybody on their keister. I'm going to meet Putin and Kim Jong-un. Is that just part of the art of the deal? Yeah, I think um, he likes to be un- unpredictable. I think the Russians will have him pretty well pegged. He likes to be praised. Uh, he likes strong leaders, um, particularly those who have uh, authoritarian power, who don't have to worry about the press and, you know, uh, being criticized by their own um, domestic uh, audiences. Um, so from that from that standpoint, yeah, that's why this is somewhat unpredictable in the sense of, okay, what's going to be on the table? How strong are we going to be on issues like meddling in our election, uh, Crimea, Syria? the uh, Russian um, violation of the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Agreement by placing you know, these intermediate nu- uh, uh, missiles uh, uh, closer to, to, the, uh, to Europe, where, which is essentially their, you know, their target. And how, is they going to, how are they going to treat um, these issues when the president sits down with Putin? You know, he said, by the way, on meddling, he said, well, Putin told me they didn't meddle. Yeah. He seemed to believe that. This is a major issue for us. Any country, uh, whatever country it is, that would try to meddle in our election to turn a result, whether it's successful or not, is something certainly that we should not only be concerned about, but extremely concerned. And um, uh, President Trump, uh, unfortunately, doesn't seem to have that as a big issue on the agenda. How is will this... he raise it? I don't know. Uh, I, I assume he'll raise it in some way. Yeah, he said he it is. Probably will be soft. He said he was going to raise both the contem- both the contamination of the election issue and Crimea. But as you said, to what extent we don't know. Yeah. Well, uh, Crimea is off the table. I think the Russians aren't going to yield on Crimea. Uh, but Eastern Ukraine is another issue where we've got Russian troops there goading on those uh, uh, anti-Ukrainian uh, government uh, troops that are there and helping them. Um, there is an agreement in that regard. I hope he presses them at least on that. I don't think we're going to get anywhere on, on Crimea. That's just another set of issues. Trump is all about the win. How will he position this about the win? He did the same thing with Kim Jong-un, saying, oh, we're all safe now. How is he going to position this? Well, he's certainly not going to position it as a loss. I mean, that's not in his, yeah. that's not in his character. So he will find any, I think the president will find any way to say, yes, we made a lot of progress, Putin promised this, Putin promised that, and, um, you know, he show, it, I, I, it's sort of the equivalent of I looked into his eyes and saw his soul, <laughs> George W. Yeah. Bush said. Mm-hmm. Um, our relationship, you know, he, 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 after all, he said that, that we should restore uh, the, uh, the Russians to the old G8, which is now the G7. They were mm-hmm. kicked out as a result of Ukraine and, and other issues. Um, so I think from his standpoint, he may use that restoration of Russia. I heard your your last uh, guest, and I agree with him in terms of what Putin's agenda is. It's restoring Russia to great power status, having everyone have Russia on its agenda when they talk about these major issues uh, 
international issues uh, and multilateral issues, and uh, I think that will that in itself will be a win for Putin. What's what is um, so? I think Trump has to come out with some kind of solid something solid. What could it be? Uh, a stronger um, uh, agreement on uh, pulling the uh, the Russian troops out of uh, eastern Ukraine? That could possibly happen. Hmm. Meddling in our election? Well, um, we, we'll be able to tell whatever whatever uh, Putin says or claims. We'll certainly be able to tell. We know they're meddling now, and we'll know if it stops or not. So. We'll see on that one. How is this uh, North playing? Korea? Maybe he'll get it. Maybe he'll be able to. You know, the Russians have also violated some of the sanctions on North Korea. Maybe he can get some. Given the fact that he just met with Kim Jong Un, maybe he'll get some progress on that as well. Uh, we've only got a little bit of time okay. left, but how is this playing in the U.S.? I mean, is this the typical answer where the base loves it, everybody else doesn't? I mean, has it gone yeah. beyond that yet? I think the base does. His base doesn't care much about the, the about the Russian relationship anymore. Yeah. You know they're tied to him for uh, almost psychological reasons because he sticks up for, he sticks up for them and he says things that people think are outrageous that that his base that his base actually likes. So I don't think it matters with his base. I think most people in the United in the United States um, that are outside his base in the sort of the moderate, even the right a little bit right of center and certainly center and left of center are concerned about what this president. Will will do when he faces up with um, Putin, the, who's quite obviously uh, the head of a country that's a major adversary to us now. Melvin Levitsky has been with us, professor of international policy and practice, Gerald R. Ford School of Public Policy, University of Michigan. Melvin, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. I appreciate talking with you. Thanks. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. There was lots of chatter at one time between uh, Donald Trump and North Korean leader Kim Jong-un about the size of each other's button, nuclear buttons, and, uh, of course, threatening and fire and fury. And then all of a sudden there was, let's have a meeting and, and a big summit and, and group bear hug. And uh, the South Korean, uh, sorry, the uh, South Korean uh uh, leadership very much involved in in bringing these uh, two sides together, and uh, I guess having what what was a successful summit, or was it? Um, what is the current state of North Korea and their denuclearization? Are they moving towards that or the opposite? Uh, several media outlets are reporting that the country is upgrading a nuclear facility, despite what came out of the summit. Let's bring in Donald Baker, Department of Asian Studies, University of British Columbia, and is with us now. Donald, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Good to talk with you, Scott. So we remember the pomp and circumstance of the Singapore summit with Kim Jong-un. Uh, many were uh, talking after this summit whether anything really was accomplished. Uh, now we're a few weeks out. Can we see any development? Well, we can see North Korea has, has tuned down their anti-American propaganda. Uh, the anniversary of the start of the Korean War right. uh, was a couple of days ago, and they didn't do their usual thing of saying how America attacked them first and, 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 and deliberately killed innocent civilians. But, as you just mentioned, they are continuing to work on this nuclear, they call it a nuclear research facility, is what they call it. Uh, and there were no requirements in the big, big, vague agreement that Donald Trump and Kim Jong Un had. No requirement that they shut down that facility. It wasn't even mentioned. Right. So, but, in other words, with no template, when, without any sort of program or agenda here, uh, nothing's. Nobody's checking any boxes off. Exactly. And I saw that Pompeii uh, has said in America that. They haven't got a timetable yet for the detailed negotiations they need to begin the process of denuclearization. And in North Koreans are very good. They will stick to the letter of an agreement. But if you leave them any kind of a gap, and this is, um, they will walk right through it. And the gap that Trump left them is big enough for an elephant to walk through. Mm. So uh, they're not violating any agreement because the agreement has said nothing about this. So where? Uh, what about that template? What about that framework? What about that agreement? Are people working on that now? I hope so. <laughs> uh, South Korea is still pushing ahead and talking with the North Koreans. They're having meetings to set up uh, plans to improve the North Korean uh, railroads, for example, which are in terrible shape, and possibly even 
reopen some roads between railroads or regular highways between North Korea and South Korea so trade can commence once the sanctions are lifted, because the sanctions are still in place. Mm. The, the, none of the sanctions, sanctions are being ignored by China now, but they're still legally in place. So South Korea legally can't trade with North Korea until those sanctions are lifted, but they're preparing to do so. Uh, you talked about uh, how there wasn't, there isn't as much uh, anti-U.S. propaganda. The uh, events or holidays that they have around them were canceled. If you're a person in North Korea, and you know every year you've got to get dressed up with your family and go stand in the square and do exactly what you're told to do, what? How are they feeling if all of a sudden this year? No, don't worry about that. We're not doing it. How is that going to play in North Korea? I'm sure that people are a little bit confused because they've been told for 70 years how evil the Americans are. And, and now all of a sudden the holiday and big celebration is off. Right, right. So um, I don't know what they're going to do with the big museum they opened in Pyongyang a few years ago that's called the, the Great Museum Commemorating the Victory in the in Motherland Defense Against the United States Attack. <laughs> yeah. The museum is still there. Might require but. some new signage for that. Yeah. Um, that being said, uh, where is everybody fine with how this is advancing? Is everybody is this exactly what everybody expected, or are people becoming frustrated or agitated that this isn't moving more quickly? Well, I think that people in the U.S. government are frustrated that Donald Trump is saying he had a very successful negotiation, but they're not seeing any real concrete results other than you know. North Koreans dialing back the propaganda. I think the South Koreans were well aware this is only going to be the beginning, and they're still pushing ahead and trying to ease tension. And of course, canceling the military exercises between South Korea and the United States engaged in every year, that did help ease tensions along the border. So it is quieter. I mean, people aren't yelling at each other and not threatening nuclear strikes at each other right now. So that, that's an improvement. But I think in South Korea, they're, they're, they're realistic. They realize this is a long haul. And they realized that the, all that happened in Singapore was an easing of, of verbal uh, attacks on each other. <laughs> but nothing else significant was really done. So that being said, it's pretty much business as usual for nuclear development in North Korea until this framework is actually hammered out. Except if North Korea goes ahead and shoots off another ICBM or test another atomic bomb, then that would upset the, the, the whole situation and we would find um, heated rhetoric again. I don't think North Korea is going to do that now. And in this facility that they're expanding, this nuclear research facility, they can claim they're doing it to have better sources of electric power. Right. Electric power. Uh, so they're not tearing up the agreement. They're just getting away with as much as they can without upsetting the United States. So they don't want the, they don't want the threats of war to come again. North Korea doesn't want that either. When this, shortly after this summit, though, there was lots of pictures of them blowing up that mountain, which, uh, from what I understand, was about to collapse anyway. Um, so why go to that extent if you're continuing with the program? Well, again, this program is that they can take fuel rods and extract from them plutonium useful right. for bombs. Right. But it could, you know, South Korea has a lot of nuclear plants that are used for to generate power. Right. And, and actually, back in 1994, when the United States and South Korea and a bunch of other countries, including Japan, uh, worked on an agreement with North Korea to stop their nuclear uh, bomb development program, we, we agreed to give them nuclear power plants that could not be used to provide material for bombs. Mm-hmm. And, and so maybe, uh, and then that, that, that agreement collapsed after eight years when the United States didn't follow through and all that was supposed to apply to North Korea. So maybe the North Koreans are saying, hey, look, you promised to build us nuclear power plants two decades ago. You didn't do it, so we're going to go ahead and keep doing it ourselves. And you can't say we can't because that wasn't in the agreement. So is this story a concern, the fact that this is still going on, or is this business as usual? I think it's not a big concern. I think the concern is that the agreement that Trump and Kim Jong-un made is so vague. Yeah. Uh, they need to keep talking. And it's concerning that Pompeo said no timetable has been set for future negotiation. That, that, that is concerning. But we do have – we've gone through this before, by the way. We've gone through freezes yeah. where North Korea didn't do anything provocative for a while. And, and also in the 1990s for a while, these joint military exercises – were canceled for a couple of years. So we've gone through these, these periods of relative calm, and 
in the last one, the one from 1994 to 2002, you know, lasted quite a while. So there's still hope, but I don't think we should say, oh, we shouldn't say what Donald Trump said, that the North Korean nuclear threat is over. It's not. <laughs> okay. It's well, just, Pompeo it's, said, I'm confident that what he intended to say was that we reduced the threat. So we reduced the threat that the North Koreans are not testing any more missiles and bombs, yeah. and they're not threatening to use them. And so, to that extent, we reduce the threat. <laughs> so, long how long? How long do do people? How how long do people attempt to to hammer out some sort of template or some sort of framework on this before something sets it off the rails? Uh, are, are we? Do, do you feel we're making progress here? Well, we're kind of we're making slow progress, but. Uh, it would probably take two to three years or longer to actually work out the details we need to actually see North Korea denuclearized. And North Korea, in the meantime, is going to want more clear signs that the sanctions are going to be lifted because they're suffering economically. And if they continue to suffer economically, they will say, why should we go along with this process? What, what, good, what is it doing for us? Now, China is beginning, again, to ignore uh, the sanctions. There's increased trade between North Korea and China over the last couple of months, actually. Uh, but still, you know, the United States, Europe, uh, South Korea can't invest in North Korea. North Korea can't sell stuff to them. Uh, so they want to see some concrete results. So as long as the United States government keeps saying, as it has been saying, that there will be no lifting of sanctions until North Korea denuclearizes, I suspect within a few months, maybe a year or two, North Korea is going to say, wait a minute, yeah. you know, we, we tried to be nice guys, but we didn't get anything from this, so we're going to go ahead and and uh, start testing our missiles and bombs again. Uh, is Kim Jong-un old news for Donald Trump at this point? You know, they had their little uh, summit. Uh, he saved the world. It's time to move on to Putin. Yeah, I think that's right. I think, uh, he, he has a very short attention span, obviously. So he's not paying attention to North Korea, but I assure you there are people in Washington, D.C. who still are paying attention to North Korea. Do you think that's what he's trying to do with this so-called Putin summit that may happen or is going to happen in Helsinki? He'll go in, he'll have a great photo op, he'll shake some hands and, and you know, say some things that, that makes, I, I guess, some people uh, happy, others concerned, and then sort of brush his hands and say, okay, that, that fire's out, time for another one. I, I mean, is he hoping that uh, that the U.S. will feel different about Russia after this, the way I guess we feel different about Kim Jong-un? I think what he would like to happen, he could come back from Helsinki and say, see, the Russians aren't bad guys. They couldn't possibly have interfered in our election. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's what he, he wants people to see the Russians as good guys, and therefore there's no need to continue the Mueller investigation, which will probably uh, will continue and will eventually get some members that are... Well, they already are getting people that are very close to Donald Trump. Many are questioning and question, uh, and as you, as you have been saying here, that there was no real details around the Singapore summit. There was there was no framework to, or, or really guidelines for anyone to move forward. It was more of of uh, of just a meet and greet, um, and and everyone in the world seems to be content with that. Will they be as content with the same meeting with Putin? Oh yeah, you're right. Everything's cool. We've got everything under control. Now let's you know put out the next fire. Will that will that uh, appease his base? Say that the same way that he has in North Korea. It may appease his base, but the Europeans are going to be happy if Trump appears at the summit with Putin to accept what what the. Um, Russians did with Ukraine, yeah. uh, and so we'll have to see uh, how how the Europeans react to what he, what happens after that meeting with Putin. How is Kim Jong Un viewing all of this? You know, at first Trump meets with him. Now he's uh, meeting again with Putin. Uh, how does how does Kim Jong Un view Trump? Do you think? I think he he, he views him as somebody who's easy to manipulate. <laughs> Uh, we know that when Kim Jong-un went back to Pyongyang, the, the press there, which is all government-controlled, of course, was all, all praising him for being this great, being recognized now as a peacemaker, Kim Jong-un. Yeah. <laughs> that Donald Trump had asked to meet with him, that's what they're saying. And, and, of course, the North Koreans are also cozying up to the Russians again after a long time. They've had the foreign right. minister from Russia visit Pyongyang not long ago. Uh, and so uh, they, they, they like the idea that... that, that that Trump is meeting with Putin, if that will ease tensions in the world, and maybe Putin will say to Trump, you know, you really should lift these sanctions on the North Koreans, they're really suffering. Mm. Uh, one, of the, one of the points of contention um, that probably Trump would bring up, all these North Korean workers in Russia 
who get paid terrible wages, but it's more than they can get in North Korea, and they're working in almost slave conditions. Mm. And they provide a lot of foreign exchange for the North Korean government because a lot of their salary goes directly to the government, not to them. Uh, the American government is officially on record as saying those laborers should be sent back to North Korea. That hasn't happened. They're still working there in eastern Russia. So uh, whether that will be – I doubt that will be brought up. <laughs> but hmm. there are people who would like that to be brought up at the meeting between Trump and Putin. Uh, does uh, Kim Jong-un see Donald Trump the way other world leaders do? Um, and not so much for his own personal politics, but does he see him as someone who's um, unstable, unpredictable, uh, divisive? Does he see does, – or, or does he see him as, um, uh, no, someone who might finally understand where we're coming from? No, I think it's the, the former, not the latter. I think he sees Donald Trump as someone who is unstable. And he uh, can play. And so, but that, that could be, um, I mean, Donald Trump has, has said that that's a good idea, that, that, that keeps people worried about what he'll do, so they'll be more careful. And that may be the fact, but it also means he doesn't have much respect for Donald Trump, I'm sure. How long do you think before things start to heat up again along the Korean Peninsula? Well, we did have one eight-year break, but uh, that was before North Korea had actual bombs and missiles. I would say another year or so, if the sanctions aren't eased, things will heat up again. Yeah. Is Do you see another meeting between Kim Jong-un and the president? I, I don't, but you never know with Donald Trump. I mean, he's, he's talked about flying to Pyongyang, which would be a real coup for North Korea. Uh, I know this isn't your specialty, but we, we certainly have, have heard how uh, people uh, responded to the Singapore summit after all of this is complete with Putin and Helsinki and such in July. What, what do you think we'll be talking about the next day? That's a very good question. I mean, there's problems with China as well, right? Um, the American defense chief was just in China, and the Chinese were insisting that those islands down in the South China Sea have been Chinese territory forever, which as an historian I know is not true. Uh, the United States government doesn't recognize that as Chinese territory and has been flying bombers over what China considers Chinese airspace down in the South China Sea. So that could be the next big issue after Russia. It could be American relations with China. Oh, man, where does it stop? Uh, Donald Baker's been with us, Department of Asian Studies, University of British Columbia. Donald, as always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Good talking with you, Scott. Thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.